All right, if you would just uh, read the screen along with me. Transformed by grace. All right, let's take a look at that one more time. Transformed by grace. So there's a, one of the books that I really, really love and encourage you to read. It's more like a little pamphlet. The book is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I've recommended it numerous times. And so at the beginning of the book, it has these, these lines. What are the marks of a heart that has been radically changed by the grace of God? My hope is that as you come here week by week, we get to hear about the radical love and grace of Jesus. I hope that over the years as you've come, you've heard about Jesus again and again. I hope as you come to the table, you've received his grace and you've lived in that grace as Barbara smiled about a few weeks ago that all of our sins have been washed away from us and we are clean before God. I hope you live in that truth. I hope you've heard it again and again. But I want to ask the question now, as we hear that truth reminded to us over and over again, what are the marks of a heart that has been radically changed by that grace? If we trust in Christ, what should our hearts look like? It is not simply a matter of morally virtuous behavior. It is quite possible to do all sorts of morally virtuous things when our hearts are filled with fear, with pride, or with a desire for power. We're talking about hearts that have been changed at the root by the grace of God and what that looks like in real life. Right? We can do all sorts of virtuous things for not very virtuous reasons. Right? So what about that heart that's been really changed? Today I want us to think about that as we consider a couple stories and then what is happening in the letter in that New Testament book of Philemon. Paul writes to Philemon. Philemon is not a place, it's a person, it's a man, it's a, it's a slave owner, one who has the church meeting at his house. Let's look at what, or listen for a moment to what the end of Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, says. It says this, we have to relive the gospel every time we pray. We have to relive it every time we go to church. We have to relive the gospel on the spot and ask ourselves what we are doing in the courtroom. The courtroom is an analogy where I want to make my case so that I get the right verdict. And again, we know this, I've told you this over and over and over and over and over again, and yet I live with and live amongst people, um, oftentimes myself, where I still have the mindset of, I need to live this way so that God will love me, rather than I live this way because he already does. And so I wonder how many times in our lives we get caught up in all this activity, all this virtuous activity, so that God will love us and accept us. And we're not free. Because then I do what I do, not for my neighbor's sake, but for my sake. Does that make sense? That's not what we want to do. The verdict is in. We're already good. That's why we need to hear the gospel about the grace of God, his great mercy and love for us because of Jesus. We need to hear that over and over and over again. And, and on the spot, continually reminding us, reminding ourselves of that wonderful truth so that we might then be transformed by God's grace, not trying to earn it somehow. I'd like to just read a little bit from Romans chapter 12. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Be transformed. That's a passive. That's what's supposed to happen to us by the renewing of our minds. So how does this happen? Well, as we continually think not about me, but about Jesus. Galatians 2.20. Can anyone quote that with me? I have been crucified with Christ, and now I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We'll work on it. You'll get it by next week, okay? Let's work on that. Galatians 2.20. So crucified with Christ. So it's not, no longer about me and how great I am. It's about Jesus and how great he is and what he has done, which transforms us to live a new life. So if I keep thinking the same old thing, so I had a couple come into my office the other day up at Concordia, and, and they were talking about some of the struggles they were having in their relationship. And as we, as we talked, and, and they started, he was, he was sad about various things. There's just things happening in his life. And so I always have people do a little thought log. Okay, well, let's think about what you're thinking about and break it down into four things. What are you sad about? What are you angry about? What are you afraid of? And then what are you thankful for? And it's really interesting what we fill our minds with. I would love to have you do that at some point, too. Just kind of write down, what am I I consumed with thinking about? And I have people that respond back to me, man, my fear list is a long list. My anger list isn't far behind that. Interesting. And sometimes what I hear is that that fear list is going really super long, and that Thanksgiving list is almost not there. Oh, huh, what are we thinking about? Are we thinking about Jesus and all the great things, the God's grace to us? Or am I thinking about all the things that aren't going my way right now? Hmm. Right? And that's going to determine then how we live. I have a little story for you from a Yancey book. Just like you to hear it. This is sets the devotion before was about Nelson Mandela, South Africa. And he's the one who established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And in that commission, what they would do is they would not have punishment for those who would actually come and confess what they did that was wrong. So I need you to hear that before you hear this story. At one Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearing, a policeman named Van de Broek recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body. Eight years later, Vanderbrook returned to the same house and seized the boy's father. The wife was forced to watch as policemen bound her husband on a woodpile, poured gasoline over his body, and ignited it. The courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who had lost first her son and then her husband was given a chance to respond. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbrook? The judge asked. She said she wanted Vanderbroek to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the dust so she could give him a decent burial. His head down, the policeman nodded agreement. Then she added a further request. Mr. Vanderbroek took all my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. Spontaneously, some in the courtroom began singing Amazing Grace. 
as the elderly woman made her way to the witness stand. But Vandebroek did not hear the hymn. He had fainted, overwhelmed. Justice was not done in South Africa that day, nor in the entire country during months of agonizing procedures by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Something beyond justice took place. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, said Paul. Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu understood that when evil is done, our response alone can overcome the evil. Revenge perpetuates the evil. Justice punishes it. Evil is overcome by good only if the injured party absorbs it, refusing to allow it to go any further. And that is the the pattern of otherworldly grace that Jesus showed in his life and death. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written... It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's in the Bible. (laughs) That is to lead and guide and inform our lives. That, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is what a transformed life would look like. That's what she spoke out of. She had to speak out of grace, out of being transformed by grace. But you know, when we hear that, you know what we think? Well, obviously you do, because you know what you thought when I read that. You know what we think? We think, that's impossible, Pastor. I could never do that. And I would say, you're right. But remember what I told you about Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. I can't love and forgive and do what I need to do for that person and the horrible thing that they did. I can't imagine. My life has been so easy. I can't imagine watching someone murder or take somehow burning to death someone I desperately love. I certainly cannot imagine wanting to spend time with them so I could be a mother to them or a father, as the case would be. Can you imagine? But when I look at Jesus and when I see the changed lives of the disciples and when I see how he's working again and again and again, 
God can do what you and I can't. So here's the question. What does a transformed life look like for you regarding relationships with conflict? Well, what about here? There's more to life than just conflict. So there's a young man I met with. He gave me the permission to share. I'm not going to share his name, but there's a young man I met with this week who, who's had an experience where, where he um, was on a trip, and he's never, ever dealt with this before. This is a big, big man. Again, his arms are bigger than my legs. He is a big gr- guy who's gone through a very difficult life, okay? Very difficult growing up, difficult, lots of things he's missed out on. And this man is one of the most caring, loving, faithful, serving, helping people I've ever met. Wonderful man. Well, this man was driving with his wife out to an event, and as they were driving, it's a long drive, and he began to develop anxiety on the drive. And he had some panic attacks on the way. And after that happened, he's actually said he went nine days without sleeping. So I didn't think a person could live going that long without sleep. And I'm sure he must have gotten little catnaps here or there, but didn't sleep at night. Nine days. And he's been struggling with it, and he's been dealing with it, and he's been struggling with it, and been dealing and struggling and struggling and struggling, and it's really been hard, and he's gone and checked out various things and gone to doctors, and nothing helps. He, he's gone to the emergency room time and time and time again, and just nothing has really helped. He's seen some counseling. He's done all these different things, and he's still really struggling. And you know, in all of this, his family has a background of dealing with anxiety, And his little brother, who is bigger than he is, which is hard to imagine, his little brother, actually, as he's watched his older brother deal with this, his little brother has been drawn closer to him. The one, this man I know and love, who's so into helping and serving everyone, has tried helping and serving him before, but he's not always been as open. But now, in his struggle, this brother is drawn close because they both then struggle with anxiety together. And he's been asking him more questions about Jesus and relationship with God in the middle of this struggle, his own personal struggle. It's crazy, isn't it? It's almost like what Paul says is true. Three times I asked the Lord to take this from me. Yet he said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For, do you know how it goes? My power is made perfect in weakness. Oh, so God needs to use the weakness of the cross to change lives. He needs to use the weakness of the anxiety and the lack of sleep to change the situation so that his brother is more and more open to hearing and being drawn to him. I don't know how many times I've heard this, and and I can totally get this wrong, but but I'm just curious, how many times when you lose a loved one, when some devastating thing happens, that you're walking around saying, I've got to be strong. Mm -hmm. And God says, I wish you'd be weak so I could use you. Mm 
Is it okay to be weak? Will you let yourself be you and depend on Jesus' strength? This very powerful, very strong, very helpful, very knowledgeable, wonderful man is learning that lesson these days. So what's happening in Philemon? Well, we have a slave slave named Onesimus. Let's just say that name together. Onesimus. Okay, so that name actually means useful. And so what's so interesting is that there's a play on words here, okay? Because what Paul writes Philemon is he says is, this one who's who's been useless to you has now become useful to live up to his name. Okay, And so what I want you to hear is that this slave, Onesimus, had some responsibility and probably stole from Philemon. And so he stole enough to be able to make it from Colossae, where they're from, over to Rome. (coughs) And so he's had enough money to go there and be there. But while he's there, again, God's working, God's amazing work. He connects Onesimus with Paul, who had already shared the faith with Philemon. That's why Philemon has the church meeting in his house. Interesting how all that happens. Okay, so Paul writes to Philemon to appeal to him to let grace, the grace he's already living in, because Philemon is one who has refreshed the hearts of the saints. He's made a difference in God's kingdom. He's lived this new life. Now Paul says, I appeal to you. I could command you as one who's brought the gospel to you, but I appeal to you now to live out, to live out this transformation in your life. Because you know what you could do. When Onesimus brings this news back to you from me, Paul, you, Philemon, have every right according to the law to kill him. He's a slave. It's your right. But instead, what I want you to do is restore him and welcome him back, not just as a slave, but as a brother. And even beyond that, and many think that what Paul's saying there is, Welcome him back as a brother and then send him back to me because he's really useful to me. I'm here in prison. I could sure use the help. Please send him back. That's what some think. But think about it for a moment. How many of us would be like that younger son? I mean, sure, if it's a famine and there's nothing to eat but what you're feeding to the pigs, you might go back to your father. But how many of us as a runaway slave, knowing that what we deserve is death, would go back to the one who could kill us confess what we have and ask and plead that the God who's changed my life, the God who's changed Paul's life would change Philemon's attitude towards me so I could have life. Paul says, I I pray that the sharing of your faith may reveal to you all the good things that you have in Christ. That sharing of your faith, we always think like, well, let's tell somebody about Jesus. But in here, the sharing of the faith is Sharing God's grace with someone who doesn't deserve it. Who's in your life that doesn't deserve God's grace, that desperately needs it from you? May I ask that one more time? Who's in your life that doesn't deserve God's grace, that needs to hear it from you, that needs you to share it?
So what's the basis of all this? The basis of all this is, again, the mercy of God, like in Romans 12. The mercy of God, God's amazing grace. John 3 speaks about the wrath of God, the wrath of God that is on us, only removed by the blood of Jesus. So think of it this way. We all walk around with the wrath of God because we mess up. The wrath of God is on us, but it's removed because of Jesus. Jesus is like the Teflon that all the wrath goes away. So if you think about it, all those wonderful people in your life, your family members, all those great people that are really moral people, really virtuous people, without Jesus, the wrath of God remains on them. Right? That's what John 3.36 says. Without Jesus, that wrath remains on them. So that's what we deserve. But we have been transformed by God's grace. We know that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, Paul is appealing for Onesimus to Philemon. Jesus is appealing to the Father on our behalf. That we might be diverted from God's wrath and have abundant life in Christ. A transformed life that impacts our relationships. A transformed life that forgives, even when we don't have power in ourselves to do so. A transformed life that understands that God can use me even at my weakest moment to accomplish his wonderful work in the life of someone close to me. Someone who's watching me. Therefore, what does a life that has been transformed by the grace of God look like? When you look in the mirror. Amen.